In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you're having a beautiful day. I hope the sun is shining. I hope the birds are singing. I hope you got to wake up in the arms of the person you love the most. And if you didn't, well, hey, listen to the True Life Podcast because we can bring a little bit of warmth over here. We got a great show for you today. In a career that spans more than 25 years, Jason has launched hundreds of new products, everything from medical devices to virtual healthcare systems to non-dairy consumer cheese to next generation alternatives for the dreaded cone of shame for pets to sex aids for cows. What? Uh, Jason is a graduate of both the University of Wisconsin and the University of Minnesota and has completed postgraduate studies at the MIT Sloan School of Management. His formal training has been invaluable, but he credits his true success to growing up in a family of artists, immigrants, and entrepreneurs. They taught him how to carefully observe the world, see patterns before others notice them, and use those insights to create new innovations. History is his favorite way to observe the world. And he believes that people from the past have plenty to teach us about the challenges and opportunities we face today. He's the author of several books. One is Booze, Babe, and the Little Black Dress, How Innovators of the Roaring Twenties Created the Consumer Revolution, and Marketer-in-Chief, How Each President Sold the American Idea. He's also the co-founder of Agent Zero. And Jason, I'm so stoked you're here today. We're going to figure out why you write about history. What's going on, my friend? How are you? I'm doing well. I, it's, uh, it is a chilly, just about winter day in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, where you are seems so, <laughs> so, so much better. And I think that's something unique about Hawaii generally is everyone in the rest of the United States wants to be where you are right now. Uh, if we can just get a little, I, that's one of the, I, I love to talk with you, but just the, just to be in Hawaii for an hour or just imagine that I'm in Hawaii for an hour is, uh, is life affirming for me. So thank you. 
<laughs> well, you're, you're here now. You know, we are we are exchanging the vibes through the through the interwires over here. And it is. It's a beautiful place. I think anytime you're really surrounded by nature in a in a setting like this, and we're free from billboards over here and the the pornographic nature of stuff screaming for your attention, which I think plays a giant role in in focus and clarity and understanding. So yeah, Hawaii is such a beautiful place. And often I think that some of the best teachers are a waterfall or a battered coastline and there's plenty of them over here to learn from. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're, su we're surrounded by nature here too. It's just sure. most of it's brown and dead. Uh, and, uh, uh, and it won't wake up again until spring. It makes people in Minnesota really appreciate uh, spring. That's that's why we're so happy about it and why we're so joyful at that time. But we got to make it through that and we find things to enjoy during the winter. Do you think that there's some, it seems to me that maybe there's a, a life lesson there. Like here in Hawaii, everyone's really laid back because the, the climate is the way it is and food literally falls from the trees. You know, however, it does seem much like in life when you're close to death, you come to some real realizations and you are very thankful. So when the seasons change and the winter comes and you're freezing, like maybe on some level, it makes you more thankful or more grateful. Like people in Minneapolis are like some of the nicest people on the planet. Well, uh, I think so too. I think there, uh, I've met lots of folks from Hawaii though, who I find also Absolutely. quite, uh, quite happy and uh, thankful and grateful as well. Uh, yeah, you can, uh, you know, somewhere around February or March, ask us again how grateful and thankful <laughs> we are. And, uh, and and we'll let you know. It's uh, This is, we're recording this right a couple of days before the U.S. Thanksgiving holiday, so that, that's on the mind. But somewhere around middle of February, right at the time where Valentine's Day is there and we're, we're wondering why would you put Valentine's Day at the, at, every time you talk to someone from Minnesota, Wisconsin, this upper Midwest area, you ask them why on earth is Valentine's Day in the middle of February? Uh, maybe it's about that, like, hey, we've got a, you know, uh, let's, uh, uh, this is the time to kind of snuggle with the person you love. Maybe, maybe that's part of it. I don't know. Uh, I, I see Brad there. Welcome from greetings from <laughs> Minneapolis. I love that. Uh, uh, we're all here. Uh, we're, we'll make it through. We do this every time we make it through every time. <laughs> That's interesting. I think it's a great segue. A lot of people say that the best predictor of future behavior is past relevant behavior. And you have an incredible way of writing about history. Maybe you can talk to us about how that, how that affinity came to be. You spoke a little bit of, right in the, in the introduction, you, you referenced your family of artists and, and entrepreneurs and, and giving you this lens to see patterns differently. That sounds fascinating. Maybe we could start right there. I think that, uh, you know, like most people who ended up uh, writing history, uh, we started by being consumers of it and readers of history, you know, and, you know, just what fascinates me about good history is that it's so human. And it's so relevant. And the more you read, not the surface stuff, you know, the too much of history today, George, is, uh, especially if you've taken it in college or high school, it's names, dates, places, a lot of wars, like here's the battle of this, the battle of that. And, you know, for some people that's really relevant, but for most people that just doesn't like, that doesn't really connect with their day-to-day -day life. And 
but the more you read about it, the more you kind of dig in and you read really good history, mm. you start to you start to see people you start to see people in it, and you start to see you know uh, historian David McCullough, uh, who just passed away, uh, uh, had a wonderful way of putting this. He said, you know, people in the past didn't walk around saying, "Well, uh, look at how great it was to live in the past," you know, <laughs> you know. You know, they're, you know, they, in, in our past, they're living in their present and, you know, they are real human beings with real hopes and dreams and fears. And to really understand what it was like, you know, he wrote uh, about the revolutionary area in the United States quite a bit, you know, kind of late 18th, uh, you know, late 18th century. And what's really interesting about that time is you start to get a sense for, you know, he would have the primary sources, people's diaries. People wrote a lot more back then because we didn't have TV. You didn't have radio. Uh, printing was hard. You had to go to a printing press and that it took a lot of skill. You know, so people wrote a lot of letters. And you realized when you read, you actually read the letters, how much people are afraid of like what their life was like, you know, that they lived in mortal dread of catching a cold or getting a fever. You know, and that all of them had, you know, they might have had eight, nine kids and maybe only two or three of them had survived uh, from that time. And they're not all depressing stories like that. Uh, but, you know, it really changes your perspective on this is these are real people. You can start to kind of put yourself there. You can start to think, well, gosh, how would I react to that? And that's that little spark of curiosity and that spark of connection with people who are gone a long time. And it makes you think, why? Oh, I, I wanna learn about why they thought that way. I wanna learn about what was their life like where they reacted to this situation in that way. And that's kind of where it started for me. I, you know, for, you know, since my, you know, early twenties as a kid, I grew up, you know, with, uh, you know, my parents and grandparents, uh, you know, they would read history. They didn't read business books. There were no business books uh, for, you know, Cuban immigrants coming over. They read history. And those are a lot of the books I grew up with. And then in my 20s and 30s, uh, I was a huge consumer of history. And I think the real, one of the real catalysts to help me start to actually write and give back was, and some of your listeners may have, if they're into history, they know who this is, uh, Dan Carlin. Uh, Dan Carlin's a pretty famous podcaster. He uh, is the uh, is the host of the program Hardcore History and its various spinoffs. And I think like a lot of people, he inspired me. He said, he's not a historian. I'm not a historian. But we have a perspective. We have a point of view. And we can share that with people. And that was really started me on the path to say, you know what, I can I can give back maybe some small bit I can contribute back to the world. Uh, all of that, all that I've been able to be gifted and take in. So that's a long way of saying, uh, I, I felt like I wanted to give it back at least some of it. I love it. I, I think that. I think that all I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that people get to a point where they can give back because I think everybody can contribute. And maybe when you look back right. at history, you're beginning to see the echoes of people 
in your own life. It seems to me when you look back at good history and you really get into a story, even like a sometimes fiction too for me does this, but if you can really put yourself in the in the position of the person that was facing this thing, you can really begin to see a lot of yourself in that character. In some ways, it helps us shift our perspective and understand wow, this person, I can identify with this person because they're going through something very similar to me, even though it's in a time I'm not aware of. Is that a reflection that kind of drew you to the history as well? I think it is. You know, I think the, uh, uh, what's that old saying about, uh, you'll quit watching a movie if you don't care about the characters, right? <laughs> or you'll quit reading a book if you don't care. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's something that, uh, you know, historians generally uh you know, can learn from fiction and fiction writers is mm. that fiction really focuses on you, you know, those experiences and those, those kind of really human experiences and how to kind of bring that to life. The thing is that, you know, there are so many of those experiences that are real from real people and yeah. kind of real human experience that, you know, I believe that there would be very little need for fiction if we just told better history uh, of better <laughs> yeah. people. There's so many things. And there's so uh, there's such fascinating stories that uh, we just don't tell them enough. We don't we don't tell them that way because you know uh, historians are working to get it right. They they both have their place, right? That there's right. a uh, you know there's kind of a historical accuracy, and then there's a narrative. Uh, I just don't believe those are two separate things uh, that I think you can strive for both of those things. Uh, I think there are great examples of striving for both of those things. Uh, and I think the more we do, I just feel like the more people can see themselves in people in the past, the good, the bad, the ugly, uh, the better people we are. Uh, I feel like I'm a better person for reading history and kind of understanding. I'm certainly smarter. Uh, certainly more gracious, uh, but I think better understanding of others, uh, you know, situations that you see and kind of, uh, you know, it's not that you tolerate bad things that are happening or injustice in the world, mm -hmm. but you can better understand. And it gives you hope that, you know what? Yeah, this bad thing happened, but you know what? We got through it. And here are the people that got us through it. And, you know, if they did it, we can do it it's okay. You know, we, we made it through. I, I think history is a deeply hopeful uh, sort of exercise. When you think about what our ancestors needed to get through in an average day just to survive, you know, you, you know, I, you know, I'm sitting inside a room. It's about 72 degrees. It's about 30 degrees Fahrenheit outside, but I'm perfectly comfortable. Uh, you know, I'm well fed, dressed, you know, I don't have to kind of, you know, I'm not sitting outside even just a couple of hundred years ago, you know, I, I would have been cold and outside probably two to 300 years ago, even <laughs> go back 500 years ago or a thousand years ago, you know, think about what human life was like then compared to what it is now. We've got it pretty good. We can make it. We can, we can. We can make it through this. When I say to you, history is the nightmare from which I'm trying to awaken. What does that make you think of? <laughs> it, you know, it's uh, a lot of ways to interpret that. Uh, 
the interpretation I like I like best is related the related saying that uh, uh, you know people who don't understand their history are doomed to repeat it. That history repeats itself, and that all of the bad things that have happened are destined and doomed to kind of happen again because we're we're not learning or we're not paying attention. Uh, maybe there's some truth to that. Uh, I think that what is uh, the more you read about history, though, the more you realize that it is uh, it doesn't repeat. It rhymes uh, and it rhymes because the circumstances are different. But we are the same. People are the same. We have the same kind of emotional makeup. Uh, we are still you know, hurtful and jealous and angry and bitter. And we're also hopeful and we're also kind and we're, we're all of those things. And we're complicated, complicated creatures. And those sort of things are universal. And as, you know, history continues to march on and we have new things, we have artificial intelligence, we have electric cars, we have social media, you know, those things aren't new. You know, if you thought like, oh, people are people are so mean on social media today, I, you know, you can go back to the, you know, we talked about those revolutionary days where, you know, you look at the kind of things that Ben Franklin would say about, you know, his political opponents uh, in the, you know, in the colonies. It's just as bitter and nasty as anything you'd read on social media today. So that's not new. Uh, now we have a lot more people. You can see a lot more of it because so many more people have access to it, but it's not new. Uh, we were, right. we are all those good things and all those bad things. We just have different ways to look at it now. I'm not sure if I answered your question. You just, yeah. I, I, I like good questions. Um, uh, those are my favorite things because you don't know what the answer is. Do you? I, I love good questions. I, I agree. And there's such a great jump off point for a, interesting conversation and it I'm often reminded of when I think about history Francis Fukuyama wrote a book called the end of history a while back and it was to deal it was talking about how maybe this this is the way moving forward but I like that title the end of history and what it means to me is like the end of whose history when I think about the end of history for me, maybe it's because I'm older in my life, but for me, it's the end of history as I know it. You know, when you talk about history as being complicated and diving into history and seeing some people try to get it right and other people have a narrative, well, there is no right. And my history, moving to Hawaii from Caucasian acres and coming over here to Hawaii, where I'm just immersed in all this Eastern culture, I realized that the history that I was taught is far different from the history that other people were taught. And my history is not normally right. It's just different. But someone else has an erratically different interpretation of the history that happened. And so when we can have all these different histories together, you, know, you could see why people get upset. You could see why people fight about that's not what happened. This is what happened. But in reality, they all happen. So history seems to be this echo of reflections that all people contribute to. And that's what I think of when I, when I, when I think of Francis Fukuyama's book, The End of History. For me, it means the end of the history that I know. But history is is everybody's history, right? Do you think that, that that's kind of the flashpoint for a lot of the confrontations we see today as people are fighting over history with maybe God being a real estate agent sometimes or, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's, uh, 
You know, before we before we uh, uh, before we started the recording, you had a wonderful quote from George Orwell that I think sums that up perfectly. <laughs> you know the, you know those who, you know, you know those who, you know, uh, what is it? Those who control the future, uh, uh, you know, control the past. Uh, you know, it's it's really you know if you want to control. Kind of what goes forward you have to kind of control that that narrative yes. the story yep. that people tell each other uh or the you know history is written by the winners uh <laughs> so true. you know and that that is often true uh you know I, how i think about that is you know there is a narrative in history that i think sometimes is explicit like that where it is trying to create a narrative moving forward that mm -hmm. uh and that's not new there's every culture has a narrative creation element to it that's sure. part of the definition of culture is you have to create a shared story yes uh, by definition that shared story will be different than someone else's shared story because they have a different culture that doesn't mean that different is bad it just means that every culture is going to try to define an in-group and an out-group. And, you know, that shared history uh, will define that. Well, by its very nature, it will be different. And just by its very nature, if you think about the totality of all experiences everywhere, and this is kind of a metaphysical and a physics sort of question, <laughs> the totality of everything is just unknowable at a fundamental kind of particle physics sort of level. It just, it's unpredictable and unknowable. Uh, there's just so much going on yeah. that as humans, we have a limited ability to, uh, you know, to kind of take all that in. Uh, the best metaphor I have for that is kind of the pyramid metaphor in any sort of organizational structure. A lot of your corporate listeners will understand this. They think, well, the CEO, the person at the top is going to have the most knowledge of anyone in the company. And actually, the opposite is true. That by nature, you have to kind of filter information. Every successive layer in an organization filters. Uh, so by the time you get to the top, the CEO is probably the dumbest person in the entire organization who knows the least about what's going on. It's only natural that out of the totality of human experience, we tend to remember those things that are interesting, that are compelling, that are novel. That's not unusual we are our brains are primed to work that way that we will you know in journalism they call it if it bleeds it leads mm -hmm. you know that there are thousands upon thousands of stories I, i'm looking outside my window right now and there happens to be a starbucks out there <laughs> thousands upon thousands of people go through that drive through every day i can promise you that because i see them that line never ends you know but is that remarkable? Does that make the front page of the news? Is that on even on social media that you know, sometimes like, hey, I got a cup of coffee. Great. But it's only really notable if it's novel in some way or different in some way. So I'm not sure that it, there are a lot of explanations to kind of that, you know, defining history and defining different histories is somehow somehow uh you know meant to kind of you know explicitly you know kind of take away someone else's history and i'm not sure that sometimes yeah. that's true sometimes that is absolutely true we are trying to erase things but it's not always true and i think there's both of those things working together that 
sometimes there are people who want to erase a history to be able to erase a culture. Uh, and some folks just like, hey, I'm only really concerned about me. We are all our own favorite subject. Uh, so, you know, things about other people don't tend to be as interesting to us. That's just, that is just human nature. So when you put those two things together, I think the job of the, of the historian is to break that pattern, to explicitly go after the things that are being either explicitly or implicitly forgotten about. It's your job as a historian or someone who's telling historical stories to go find those that aren't getting told or that might be forgotten if they aren't told. I think that's part of how I see my role mm. is, you know, in Boo's Babe and the Little Black Dress, there are stories about people like Al Capone that people remember or Coco Chanel that people remember. But there are also stories in there about people like Clarence Birdseye, who people might recognize that name. Uh, for the frozen vegetables, but they don't know a whole lot about uh, Birdseye. They don't know a whole lot about, you know, a lot of the other characters in that book who may just get forgotten about uh, if their stories aren't told. And I think it's important uh, for people who tell history to dig a little deeper than kind of the standard narrative. And it's not about trying to say, trying to break the narrative or trying to say, that your history as a this type of person is invalid. That's not it. It's just, as you said, there are lots of other histories. And what could we learn? How much richer could our experience be if we understood more about them? And I think it is. I think the more you understand about it, the more you learn, the more interesting and rich, the more you, the more different you see people are, and the more the same you see people are and it's just more complicated and it's more interesting that way. I think standard narratives and story arcs are a little boring. Honestly, I, I'm not interested in it, in a lot of that anymore. I, I want to see things that are different and not the usual thing. I think that's that, that novelty is, is new. It's, is important. I love it. I, I like to, there's so much complexity involved and I like to think that maybe, maybe we're moving past the hero's journey into something that is more complicated, right? Like we've, we've thought about the hero's journey and we've had the hero's journey is beautiful. And I love it. Like it goes to my heart. Like who doesn't love the Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey? Come on. Who doesn't love Star Wars? Are you kidding? What kind of person you love Star Wars? But maybe, maybe there's more to it. Maybe we're beginning to start a new journey. Maybe there's a new chapter. Maybe there's a new mythology evolving right now. And that was the end of history. I'm curious, what, what do you think about the myths in which we were brought up on and the possibility of a new mythology unfolding right now? And what does that look like? <laughs> no, it's a, it's, it's a wonderful, uh, you know, in, when you talk about the hero's journey, uh, generally, that particular story arc. That's a very, it's it's kind of a Greco-Roman Western Civ sort of story arc, uh, for sure. And it's been kind of told and retold because it works. Uh, however, there's, there's good evidence that people tire of it. You know, if you took a look just recently here at uh, 
the I, I, I know some of your folks will kind of geek out on this. I totally get it. <laughs> uh, that's okay. And for some of you who are not uh, onto this, you will. I, 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 I'm using this part of what I how I write history is I want to connect it to things that you you've seen out there, so it, it seems relevant. Uh, but I'm going to bring up the Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, for exactly that purpose. <laughs> uh, and if you think about it, why was that so popular from 2008 to about 2020? And why is it not so much anymore? Uh, and there are a lot of reasons for both of those things. But the, you know, the big reason, and there's a lot of criticism about it, but the big reason is it told very good hero's journey sort of, you know, sort of stories. And it, it kind of wrapped up and the hero went home triumphant at the end. And to kind of keep that story go going, it's kind of like, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey part two. Who wants to who wants to see that it's done? You know, that story's done. We want to move on to something else. Uh, but I th I think where where you start to look at a world that is becoming more multicultural. It's there are a lot of bad things that happen there, but there are a lot of good things too that you know, Western audiences start to learn about Eastern story arcs and different ways to think about that and vice versa. You're starting to see more of a melding of different types of stories that you might, that might've only been told in China or might've only been told in Japan, you know, especially without of the, uh, you know, the popularity of Japanese comics and stories in the United States I think is an indication, George, that uh, there is a hunger for a different type of story that doesn't fit that kind of, you know, hero kind of narrative and that simple kind of three, four, five part arc uh, that can be well done, uh, but is a little trite and a little tired. You know, people want to see these these stories that don't fit that, that are either you know, different tragic ends, you know, people want to see something a little, uh, see something different. So I see a lot of hope in some of that growing popularity of other cultures coming in. And that mix, uh, I think, is what uh, will help us, you know, kind of get past some of that boring. I think we're at a really boring era in the early 2020s in art right now. You know, whether that's film, whether it's music, uh, whether it's kind of high or low art, it's boring right now. And I challenge anyone to come back to me. I'm sure there will be examples of, you know, kind of art that people are really excited about. But at the at, at the pop culture level, it's boring, isn't it? And we want things that are different and unique and we want to see new things but I don't think we know what we want to see yet. I think there's a lot of experimentation. Uh, you know, that happened, frankly, during, uh, you know, to kind of bring it back to a historical era, we saw the same thing happen in the 1920s. That's why I'm so fascinated by that era. That that was the era that, uh, that basically brought jazz uh, to, you know, that became kind of America's classical music, as Ken Burns would say it. Uh, you know, the documentarian. Uh, basically, there are a number of factors that 
pushed jazz out of kind of the clubs of New Orleans and into St. Louis, Chicago, Detroit, New York, Memphis, and kind of brought this kind of new style of music that was adapted into blues, was adapted into rock and roll, was adapted into hip hop, was adapted into pop music that for the past hundred years, we have been living with the legacy musically of a very small group of people that were this kind of mix of Appalachian, African, and Caribbean sort of musicians at that time, improvisational, high energy. But a lot of that has started to, we're, we're in this era where we're ready. We've had some of those same kind of cultural shakeups, right? With the pandemic, we had a pandemic in 1918, 1919 as well. You know, we've had huge cultural shakeups and no one knew in the early 1920s how all that was going to kind of crystallize into something new. But I'm really hopeful that this decade will bring us something new that we haven't seen before that will really be able to kind of give us something, some new energy, uh, new art, because art drives a lot of that culture, doesn't it? It drives innovation. It drives, you know, the, the same improvisational mindset drove business innovation as well during the 1920s. And those connections are all over the place. And we just, I don't know what the future of the next five to seven years looks like, but I'm kind of excited for it. I'm excited for what we might see. Yeah, I... I love the idea of the 20s, like the 20s, whether the 1920s or the 2020s. There's so much, you know, we, we spoke earlier and you said maybe history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. I like to think that it moves in a helical model. And if we can look back at the 20s and, and the, the things that were happening there and the things we see happening here, when I, when I look at the youth movement today and I talk to some business leaders and some people that are looking for jobs, there's such a more meaningful search going on. Like younger people have such a more meaningful search. Like they don't want to, they've seen their parents, whether they're boomers or Xers, get up and go work for a multinational corporation. They just suck the life out of them. And they don't want to do that. Like they're like, I'd rather work for free and do something meaningful. And like, to me, you know, like that, that's, that's so inspiring to me. When I, I had a conversation recently with a gentleman, I was a UPS driver for 26 years. And I was speaking with another guy. He's like, ah, oh, these new kids, you know, they come in, they don't have any loyalty, and like they just I'm like, yeah, why why would they? Why would they? Why would they have any loyalty? They're gonna do the I hope they do less. I hope they do less yeah. work here. Like I got all mad at me. He's like, Well, well, you know, you don't have a good work ethic. I'm like, why should they? Like, what are you giving to them? Like, what kind of and beyond that, what kind of example are we setting? What are we doing getting up and going doing something we hate every day? We should stand up for ourselves and give these kids something to live up to. So, but that's what I see when I see these 20s yeah. right now. Like I see a generation of younger people that are thirsting for meaning, that are going to write incredible novels, that are going to live a life that's meaningful, that's going to be inspiring. And that is where the catalyst for change is going to come from. And that does come from artwork. What, like maybe you could speak to the idea of, of the catalyst of change, whether it was jazz or the 20s and this explosion that happened, and, and maybe try to draw some parallels to today. You know what uh... – what I see that's interesting about the about the 20s at that time, we had uh, a pandemic, a uh, major war during that time. Uh, you know, the World War I wasn't as big of a deal to the United States as it was to the European continent, uh, for sure. There's not, it, not even close. Uh, 
But there was a war. During that war, the Wilson administration created something called the Committee for Public Information. Uh, basically, what it did is it trained the advertising and public relations industry uh, because he wanted to sell war bonds. That was the big idea is to fund this effort uh, because we didn't have the same kind of taxation uh, regime that we have today. Uh, so we needed the money to do this. So you needed to find some way to do it. So we trained all of these people on how to do this thing. We had people coming out of the war who needed to find work and needed to do things. We had this kind of booming economy. We had all of this new kind of innovation happening, all of these kind of cultural changes happening at that time. This was the time of, you know, migration out of the South, uh, you know, from, you know, the previously enslaved people in the South moving North, moving West. Uh, we had this tremendous kind of cultural upheaval on so many different levels. When you, it's kind of like you, you know, you kind of, you know, think about the snow globe, just shaking the whole thing up and it's going to resettle in a different way. You know, the snow globe, the problem with the analogy is the snow always settles in the same place that it was before. <laughs> this, you're, you're, you shook everything up right at the end of the prior decade and you knew things were going to happen. You just didn't know exactly what. It was really unpredictable. People really didn't know what was going to happen. And I think we have a lot of parallels to today uh, of... You know, back in the 1920s, it was people moving into the cities. And it was especially a lot of women moving into the cities, a lot of women moving into the cities alone for the first time. You know, pe most people don't realize that they have this kind of 1950s image of women in the home mm. and that that's kind of how it was. In reality, you know, a lot of the single women moving off the farms into the city, they didn't find husbands the first week they were there you know they you just uh most of them were working they were you know they were uh you know they were finding work outside the home because they had to so you have this tremendous kind of you know liberation there of people with their own money it just passed the suffrage uh you know the women's suffrage amendment so the political power you had the uh you know the 19th amendment you know the 18th 19th uh, 20th amendments right around that time prohibition amendment during that time so you had this all of these different kind of cultural upheaval uh, uh during that time whenever you do that you're going to create the kind of you know environment right for kind of recombination and change it's going to be sloppy messy good and bad and i think we're seeing the same thing so it's interesting uh, you mentioned something about young people kind of searching for meaning and not really wanting to kind of put up with the same, you know, kind of work environment. You know, what's interesting is that we see that of, of Gen Xers and baby boomers too. The biggest single change, and uh, I'm involved in a business that works on this, one of the biggest single changes we see in the workforce today is Gen Xers and baby boomers leaving the corporate workforce and becoming independent, becoming yes. fractional fractional contractors, selling their services to multiple employers, and kind of giving the big middle finger to corporate America <laughs> and saying, you know what? It we don't have to be 25 anymore to be fed up. We are, 
we're not going to take it anymore. We're going to, uh, you know, we're going to chart our own path. You know, we don't want to end up, how many people have I talked to, you know, professionally where they're in their 50s and they got laid off and they can't find another job and they're just emotionally wrecked and they, there's, they're so smart. They have so much to offer yet no way to deliver that to the marketplace. And you think about what, there are a lot of bad things that places like Uber and Airbnb and DoorDash and all of those kind of services did to the economy in a lot of ways. Uh, there's good and there's bad. There's always good and bad. Uh, but one of the good things it did was it told people like, hey, wait a second. I don't need to go work. For, like the idea of a job is not the center guiding force of my life. I, I think that's one of the biggest things that we're seeing right now mm -hmm. is a reset from our identities being tied to what we do to our, ident our identities being self-determined. And think about that too with the, uh, the transgender movement. People are very passionate about that on both sides of it. But if you take a step back from that, you start to realize what people are really doing is they're saying, I'm not going to be locked in anymore to this idea of work or gender. I, I'm going to kind of throw out all of that. And I'm going to determine what I want for myself. Ultimately, as kind of an independent sort of person and someone who values choice as the foundation of ethics, I have to celebrate that sort of independence that people will chart their own course on what they want to do with their lives. That part is, uh, that part is not going to kind of come quietly into the, into the daylight. And we, uh, I, I think the, the biggest thing is we see in the 1920s had a lot of conflict, social conflict, a ton of social conflict, uh, very parallel to what you see now. Uh, we will not, the, this won't settle down for a while. This will get the more we kind of shake up the apple cart and people determine what they want to do and reset how they want to do. We can expect more social turmoil over the next five to seven years, not less. Uh, people are going to uh, do what they want to do. They're a little tired of the past 50 years or so. It's gotten, it was the whole thing about, I, I think that Marvel Cinematic Universe is a really good parallel there. We're tired of it. We don't want it anymore. It's There's nothing wrong with the movies. They're just done. Uh, and we want something new. And I, th I think we're going to see that. The only prediction I can make over the next, the balance of the 2020s is more good stuff will come, more bad stuff will come. That's just the nature of it. We are in a time of change. And change is going to bring with it a lot of great things and a lot of things that are maybe not so great. We're going to have to sort it out. That's okay. It is totally okay for that to happen. We got through the 20s. Uh, we'll get through this. Totally get through this. Yeah, it's. I love language and linguistics. And sometimes, whether you, it doesn't matter what news channel you listen to or you get your information from, there's this prefix of trans that's everywhere and it permeates everything. But I think it permeates the idea of what's happening in the world. Like we're in the midst of a grand transformation, whether we are the caterpillar being liquefied in the chrysalis or 
whatever it is. There's a there's another great book called The Fourth Turning that speaks about generational change. And I think it comes every hundred years, like you see this thing beginning to emerge. And when I think about that, and, and one thing that I, I think is hanging on is, is I speak to a lot of death doulas and they, they tell me, you know, George, when I'm, when I'm holding the hands of someone who are in their last days, they always talk about, they wish they would have been a better father, or they should have been a better mother, a better, a better husband, a better lover, a better person. They never talk about how much more money they wish they would have made. Essentially, they're talking about their unrealized dreams. And when I think about that on a generational level, I think of the Marvel movies. I think of the people who still hold the levers of power that have that are coming to this conclusion of like, oh my gosh, I'm 80. My kids hate me. I have all this money. And what have I done? And it doesn't have to be that extreme. I'm, I'm a little, I'm an Xer, so I'm a little, you know, I'm a little offended with the boomer class sometimes. Not all of them, just my personal bias, but. You know, I think what we're seeing on a generational level is a lot of unrealized dreams. And you see people like, look, let's give them a Marvel movie. Those kids will love that stuff. They ate it up. They love the Marvel. You know, but like we're moving past that. And it is going to be a time where this next generation slowly moves on and the next generation takes its place. But you can see this echoes of this, these old ideas giving way to new ideas. And maybe you need to have this this in, not in time, but you need to have this exit of a generation. And I, I get kind of scared sometimes because I, I I see such a large population of, of boomers moving forward that are still hanging on to so much stuff. And I see this young, hungry class, like, get out of the way now or we're going to eat you. You know, and on some level, maybe you have to eat your way through the cocoon. But I, I kind of fear like a wave of elder abuse. You know, you start seeing these scams taking place. Is that too crazy, man? What do you think? You know, I think there's always, uh, you know, there's always been, there's always generational conflict. Uh, you see that there, the part of that is natural. Part of that is biological as well. You know, <laughs> that, uh, you know, that we, there are a lot of, if you look at kind of ethnography over, you know, over multiple cultures, there's always that uh, many cultures put structure in place to protect elders for exactly that reason. Uh <laughs> You know that the you know that there are different roles and different prescribed roles of different you know if you look at a lot of the classic you know kind of coming of age and there are different phases in your life a lot of those things are built to address exactly that where what role did you have at what point in your life because there is and it was try it, it meant to mitigate conflict uh, because there's uh, there is stress on that. Uh, I think now when you're in a time of change, you know, there's normal generational conflict. Both of us are Xers. So we had generational conflict kind of coming into the world in kind of the, the 80s, you know, the 70s and 80s. You know, so we had a little bit of that. But now we're in a time of not just generational conflict, but other social conflict that is kind of layering on top of that, that is, uh, that's going to make it difficult. I think that, you know, younger people are going to figure out, you know, what, uh, you know, uh, you know, how do they want to kind of show up in the world? What do they want to do? And I think the same is true of boomers, people like us and Xers who need to figure out, well, how do I want to, how do I want to go out? Yeah. How do I want to, you know, you're kind of on the back, 
you know, for the, the golfing analogy, the back nine. <laughs> how do I want to play the back nine? Because it's probably different than how I played, you know, the front nine. And I think it's going to be, uh, I think that's an interesting perspective. I think when you layer on top of that demographic change, and what I mean by that is macro level demographic yeah. change. We have been increasing in population as a globe for the past, you know, at, you know, since recorded history with some blips, uh, some pretty nasty blips, by the way, but blips. Um, however, however, all population estimates say that by somewhere around the middle of the century, uh, towards the back half of the century, global population will peak and we will begin to slide back downward. Uh, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, you know, uh, increased education, all, all those sorts of things. And we have been in a growth, kind of a growth state where the generation coming up is almost always bigger than the generation leaving. Uh, that was certainly true in the 1920s. The number of young people in the United States was hugely bigger. It was a hugely bigger number than the people over 60, over 65. Uh, hugely bigger. So there's much more influence. It is a rev relatively recent phenomenon that the number of people who are older than we are, are a majority. That's not, that has not happened really before. And that is unlikely to continue, you know, uh, for that much longer. You know, hey, can the you generations, well, the generations will be smaller right. uh, coming up. There will be yeah. fewer people, uh, you know, again, coming up. So we have this kind of generational change too, where there will be fewer of us every consecutive year in the not too distant future. And that's weird. We have not experienced that ever, really ever since maybe the 1300s uh, when it got bad. Uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, really the Black Death at that time was the last major time uh, when we had population shrinkage in recorded history, uh, that is a completely unknown, unpredictable sort of thing that is starting to happen in places like Italy and Japan uh, and even China. That's going to get weird uh, coming up, and I think, you know, to the, you know, to your point, the default over that time is when they're the when the pie is growing. There's always this kind of the default mode is to more, more, more. Like how how can we do more? How can we be more? How can we achieve more? But as the population shrinks, wouldn't it be interesting to think about more of those meaning questions? Mm. Uh, how do we do with less? What is how much less do we need? You start to see that now. It's no surprise that Marie Kondo's Japanese. That's no surprise at all. Uh, because they're thinking about less, uh, because the population is shrinking. There, it's just a totally different mindset. I, it's crazy even to think about. You know, as a business person, like, like I, I work on, you know, new products and innovation. The default for me, my entire career, has been growth. Always, there are always going to be more people next year than there will be this year. What happens when they're not? You know, mm. what happens when the market is <laughs> I love it. How much new do we need? Does it really change the idea of what innovation really is? Uh, you know, 
I'm not sure what that means. Those are, it, they're such great questions that uh, I and I don't hear anybody really talking about them in terms of you know people talk about demographic change. You know we we hear that and we mostly we hear that in terms of like well if there were fewer humans on the planet maybe there'd be put less stress on our ecosystem and our resources and that that's great. I mean that would be that'd be nice. Uh, you know so that's kind of a good benefit. But we're not talking about the rest of it, you know, what happens to, you know, not just kind of social systems, governments, balance of power, there's kind of geopolitical stuff you have to think about, but what happens on a day-to-day -day kind of, you know, kind of your day-to-day -day existence when instead of cities growing and kind of new, like, how do we, what do we do with all the extra homes we don't need, for instance? Like, it's just, it's crazy to think about what population decline will really mean 50, 60 years from now, because it's already happening in a lot of places. So those are the things I, I think about that I think history doesn't really give us a great way to think about that, other than you got to look far back. You know, uh, when you think about, well, what happened in, what happened after the Black Death in Europe, for instance? or on the Asian step, uh, what did it do? Uh, it broke the feudal system, for instance. And the reason it broke it is people's, the, you know, when you had a lot of people and you always had more people, there was always pressure that the, you always had someone else who would do that job. So you didn't really need to make that job nice. You could, you could take advantage of and abuse that corporate worker as much as you wanted, because there's always some other schmuck who would come up and just do the same job. Well, think about what's happening now, George, and your listeners will kind of see this. How hard is it to find people to do these bullshit jobs? Yep. People don't want to do them anymore, and the prices are going up. That's the market working. But what about, you know, I, was, I, I go around to the fast food restaurants near here. People don't want to do them at all, at, at no price. You know, uh, there's almost no price that makes sense where people will want to do those jobs. What happens then when you just don't have the people to do them anymore? I think you'd really need to think, rethink what matters. Uh, because, you know, maybe Arby's doesn't matter anymore, for yeah. instance. Yeah. Uh, and that probably would be good. I'm not sure the world needs Arby's. Sorry, Arby's. Uh, no, no disrespect. I don't think the world needs Burger King either. Uh, but I, I think we're going to learn a lot about what really matters when there's less of it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think that's maybe that to me, that's really hopeful because it's going to kind of refocus. You won't be able to be lazy about your thought process. It's what really matters where, where do you really want to be? If you could be anywhere, you know, you could do anything, uh, what would you do? What would what would that mean to you? That's that's kind of exciting, I think. Terrifying, but all change is scary. All change is scary. That's it. That's just something we're going to have to get right with. I love that. You know, I, I on some level, if people don't want to do a job, maybe that whole industry is pointless. You know what I mean? Like. If 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 an organization can't figure out, hey, these people don't want to do this. 
on some level, doesn't that mean the consumer doesn't want that product? Like if people aren't willing to create it, doesn't that mean that the consumer doesn't want it on some level? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So, <laughs> yes. Kind of crazy to think about, right? Hey guys, guess what? You know, I don't want to work here because your product or service sucks. And there's nothing you can, like, you could fix it, but you won't. You will not invest the time and the meaning into your own thing to make people want it because you just want to extract profit from it. Like that on some level, like I think we're just pulling back the curtain and looking at this, like this is silly. It's dumb. Why do we have so many homes and all these homeless people? Like how many corporate, like how much, how many houses can BlackRock buy? We're just going to, people are going to build them and black is going to buy all of them. Why? Why? That's so dumb. <laughs> like, what are we doing? Like, and I think that this shrink to this, this, this limit to growth that we finally hit is the last straw that breaks the camel's back. Like there's so much fraud and it's in, and, and now I think real talent, people that actually want to make a change have never had a better opportunity in their life. And it's not going to be because of money. It's going to be because they're passionate about doing it. And that is where change comes from. That is where leaders come from. That is where real ideas begin to percolate is that, Hey, this person that was fed up for 25 years, they, they broke away. Like, like you said, these, these boomers and Xers and even kids looking for more meaning, they finally found the courage to do it. And now they're going to create this thing that is going to be the next thing. I, I love these ideas you're talking about. Tell me more. You know what's, uh, we're going to totally geek out now. Yeah. Because uh, uh, we're going to bring up Star Trek. Because I, I, people ask Kirk me, like, Picard. what is, uh, <laughs> uh, Picard, of course. <laughs> uh, you can, uh, uh, Janeway also gets an honorable mention. Uh Here's the thing, though. Uh, here's here's what's different about that. When people ask me, uh, people ask me all the time, like, "Well, how how do you help predict the future? You're in the innovation business. How do you? You have to have some vision for protect, you know, projecting the future. What models do you use? What frameworks? What books do you read?" And I said, "None of them, uh, because they're all BS. Uh, the best way to predict the future, if you're." And the best way to predict the future is to create it. That's also BS. Uh, the best way to see that is to look at science fiction. What are the different ways? Because these are the people who are kind of envisioning different worlds and different scenarios. And there are lots of great work. But I'm interested in the economics of Star Trek. And here's what I mean by that. If you think about the economics uh, of that, what you realize is that it is essentially all resources, the whole basic idea of economics, the basic, when you boil it all down, you can talk about seashells or wampum beads or dollars or British pounds or yuan or whatever. It all boils down to one thing, that resources are limited and that it is the allocation of scarce resources, which basically makes economics work. It kind of the best ideas rise to the top because they outcompete the ideas that aren't as good. Because why? You have consumers have and your population has scarce resources to allocate to those things, whether they're capitalists or whether it's a socialist system, it doesn't really matter. All economics deals with that basic reality that resources are finite. What if that's not true? If, if for one of two reasons, either one, there are fewer of us. 
so that there are a lot more. Think of how much resources we've exploited and learned how to exploit over the past couple of hundred years. What if there are a tenth as many of us with that same capacity? Resources essentially become unlimited. Uh, or in the case of Star Trek, we start to learn how to mine asteroids. We start to learn how to colonize other planets, which we are, uh, which we are in the process of doing and working on right now. So you don't have land isn't limited. Resources aren't limited anymore. And you have to think about, well, what happens when you can have as much as you want of anything, anytime? You can replicate any meal you want, anytime. Like, what happens then? What is meaning in life when resources are unlimited? And what's interesting is that the whole basis for the Star Trek economy, if you kind of watch those episodes where they kind of get into that, it's about, well, how do you fulfill yourself? How do you add something to the world? How do you create something new? How do you learn something and write? And art becomes important and engineering for its own sake, the pure creativity of engineering. Uh, those are the things that become exciting and interesting for people. And I am fascinated by an economy 50 years from now, where essentially resources are unlimited for any number of different reasons. And the whole need for growth and competition sort of becomes this kind of anachronistic, you know, yeah. pointless exercise where we can say, well, okay, well, what matters then? That's where you start to really find a, uh, these skills that we're starting to work on now, I think we're starting to see the very early signs of a kind of an economic system that is, see, we're stuck right now. We're stuck in this, like these tired old arguments and they are very old arguments around, you know, different economic systems and they're silly. And the reason they're silly is they are all based on scarcity. Yep. And if you think about an abundance economy, all of those different models make no sense at all. They, they're just, they're not in, they're incompatible with, with the kind of foundational assumption. I am excited about what we can learn from those sorts of systems. Like what happens when, okay, you can, any meal, anything, anywhere you want to be, you just hop in a transporter and you can be there instantly. Where would you go? What would you do? I mean, think of the kind of change that we're already seeing. And when people say, well, that's really fantastical, you know, that's, you, you know, we would never have anything like that. Uh, I can tell you, I see kind of on my side, uh, robotic food assembly technology right now that can essentially act sort of like a replicator. You say what you want, and it it does all of the all of the cooking, all the prep from kind of base ingredients. It, we're not that far away from some of the basic ideas of that sort of technology, that abundance technology. Holy crap! Uh, you know what happens when all that's free? You know, do we? You know, how do we act differently? And I think the search for meaning and the search for creativity will. I mean. Think about even artificial intelligence. If the if the futurists are right, we will get to a point where 
artificial general intelligence would be able to take basically all of the basics and drudgery out of everyday life. You know, you won't have to do any of those things. Well, what do humans do then? You know, what will you do when artificial intelligence could you do your job, whatever that job is, better than you could? What do you do then? You know, what does it mean to be a human? What does it mean to kind of get up in the morning and what do you what do you want to experience? I think that's people are really scared about that and there are some scary things about it. But the hopeful part is, well, you know what? Maybe I'm not going to have to reply to 50 BS emails today. You know, maybe I can just kind of focus on, you know, you know, what does the beach look like today? And, you know, I want to sit there and I want to watch the sun come up and really watch, not think about anything else. Uh, that's, I know that sounds kind of, it might sound kind of zen, maybe a little kind of, you know, it, the, the criticism when we were kids, George, was it was kind of new age and a little froofy and, you know, fuzzy. I'm not sure that it is. I think it's a real challenge to think about what, you know, what we will be at that time uh, that we're not now. Uh, that's really cool. That's a, that's kind of deeply hopeful uh, for me uh, to think about what the, what the future looks like. I have no idea what it'll look like or when it'll show up, but I think, it, I think it's happening right now. Like, like I'll take myself for example, and I know other people, I think that, I think we already have AGI and I think what's happening around the world is that it's slowly being let out. Like, and you, you had mentioned earlier, like there's boomers and Xers that are leaving the workforce. Like this is the first grunion on the beach. Like how are these people going to react after 40 years of conditioning? Like, and I'll tell you, it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard because I've been conditioned to see value in money. And I've been conditioned to see an end of the rainbow after 50 years, but I know it'll never show up. But, and so, yes, reimagining something meaningful is difficult, but people will do it. You can begin to see real beauty in yourself, but you have to be free from the shackles. You have to, the, the control has to be given up. And I, you know, there's an interesting article that came out about this whole open AI thing that's happening right now. And they talk about, look, there's AGI right here. Like maybe it's already here, but the, the, the fear is if you just let it run, there'll be chaos. And there could very well be. It's meaning is a very, very powerful thing. And what does it mean if you realize at the age of 50 your life was a lie? What does that mean? What does it mean when your parents were lied to? What does it mean? Like, there's some real issues that could come up for people in positions of authority if you just let this cat out of the bag right now. <laughs> I, I think there's a, a, you know, when I think about what people are, deciding to do right now uh over the past few years since the pandemic the pandemic was a sort of catalyst but it's not like that was the uh that was the thing there are there are a lot of catalysts right but people starting to kind of rethink what meaning means what does growth mean what does productivity mean what does enough mean what does my value mean that sort of rethinking and reorientation of you know, your value in a society, your value in an economy, your value in a family, uh, you know, those, 
those are good conversations to have. I agree. You know, that kind of change, you know, there's that, uh, you know, just historically, when you think about the broad arc of history, and you think about when do societies, uh, you know, you know, kind of rise and decline. And there are a lot of reasons for all of that that historians talk about. Uh, but one of the most compelling ones for me has always been that all societies kind of skate on a razor's edge. And the razor's edge is uh, the amount of stability and the amount of change that they have. The, the better they manage kind of that razor's edge of just enough change to be dynamic, just enough stability to avoid kind of falling into chaos. That's sometimes that's easy to do. You know, I think for since the 1920s, uh, because frankly, the Great Depression, as difficult as it was, created a certain stability. Yeah, it was bad, universally, uh, pretty bad during that time. Not, you know, uh, you know, it's not that people stopped living their lives, but there was kind of a you know, foundational narrative. Since then, kind of the past hundred years or so, yeah, it's been pretty easy with a few hiccups to say, hey, there's an amount of change and there's an amount of stability. There were different times during the 60s, of course, where you kind of went more towards one side, kind of maybe in the 80s, kind of a little bit too much stability uh, for that. Uh, but we are in a time now of, hey, we took the box of kittens and we shook it up. Yeah. And, you know, it's going to be really hard to know where that balance point is. It's it's very difficult right now for, you know, people in a corporate workforce. I mean, think about the whole debate, the really prosaic sort of debate about work from home. What it really means is, what does productivity mean? That's really what we're talking about. You know, Beautiful. what does it? That's what it really means. It has nothing to do with like people talk about, like, wow, well, you know, we we want people to be in the office. Why do you want people in the office? Well, we feel like they are more productive and we get more out of them when they're there. Okay, well, then the base argument is productivity. Mm -hmm. So what is the best way to achieve that? So that's really all we're talking about. And people, workers saying, whoa, whoa wait a second. You know what, George, the most interesting kind of the most interesting people I find there are a lot of, a lot of bosses will talk about, you know, managers will talk about like, well, you know, people are lazy. They're only going to work, put in five hours during a 40 hour work week when they work at home. My answer to that would be maybe five hours a week is all the job really needed. Uh, that <laughs> the other 35 were just wasted. Right. That's what yeah. I would argue. Uh, yeah. But you know, the most interesting people, especially the younger folks, uh, and this isn't only younger folks, but mostly people who are doing two, three, or four full-time jobs, who are, work from home, they work three to four full-time jobs. Think about that for a second. If you just think like, oh, well, they're, they're violating a contract or some such thing, and that, that's all fine. Uh, I think what's silly about that though is, wait, how could one person do four jobs those jobs must not be worth full time. Like they can't be. Like, that's what it really says. If that person can be successful doing four full time things, why would you make them do, do just one thing? I, I find that not just silly, but counterproductive. I think to your point, 
the biggest thing we need to free ourselves from is kind of the constraints we put on ourselves, mm. the thought process we are yeah. conditioning, what we think is normal. You, you know, what is it? You know, you grow up thinking whatever your parents did was normal. Uh, my parents were not normal, by the way, as you could probably guess. So I kind of think everyone's not normal. Uh, I but I, I realize that most people I meet are pretty stuck in kind of a yeah. mindset of, well, this is just kind of how you go through a life. And this is kind of the stages you go through. And I see in the 2020s here, people saying, ah, I'm not sure I buy that. I'm not sure that that has to be the way it is. Maybe things can be different. And that's really cool. That's, uh, that that will lead to innovation we can't even really conceive of uh, right now. I think we're locked into like, oh, it's kind of flying cars and artificial intelligence. And all. Like, I think those are just limited thinking. Uh, I think what it really means is what is it, what can we do as humans when we are decoupled from this kind of productivity treadmill that we're on? What would we, what would we do differently? You know, when I think about it, I was in the Key West uh, a few months ago, and I got to uh, have rum with Ernest Hemingway's grandkids. No way! Yeah, Epic. they were. It was his. Uh, it was his birthday. You know, Ernest Hemingway's like, you know, some birthday anniversary, some such thing. And his grandkids were doing book signings, and it was really cool. Uh, took a tour. Of course, I took a tour. Of course, it was a. It was a rum distillery. Why are you not going to take a tour? Uh, but we're, we're in, and they had little stories about Ernest Hemingway and kind of what he did during life and kind of his creativity. And you know what I didn't notice about Ernest Hemingway? Uh, a nine to five, 40 hour a week kind of job. You know, he, he kind of effed around on his fishing boat. He drank a lot. He enjoyed himself and, you know, he did dangerous stuff. And he created, you know, a half dozen of the world's best novels uh, during that time and lots of other writing and inspired generations of people to write and to create, uh, you know, uh, you know, American novels uh, kind of in his wake. That's, that's interesting. That's that kind of like, how do you, what will, will all our lives kind of look like Hemingway's life? 20 years from now. I don't know if that's good or bad. Uh, I think he died at like 55 or something. I can't remember. He's, uh, 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 if memory serves, uh, he lived a pretty hard life, but uh, a good one. Uh, you know, will we stop kind of judging life by the extra two or three months we might be able to get out of it, eking out of it, you know, in an assisted living facility? I don't know. Uh, I'm interested in learning what, what that might be. To live a life worth living, yeah. you know, to, to have the courage to do what you want to do instead of what you have to do. I wish that was taught more in schools. I wish that instead of a Pavlovian system, and I get, I, I understand the need taking it all the way back to the beginning of the conference. I understand the need for a shared story and shared goals, and shared sacrifice. But at what cost, 
you know, at what cost are we robbing the imagination and the lives of those who have a right to live a life worth living? You know, like I, I want that. And I, maybe that maybe that comes from us as individuals getting to a point in our life and we say to ourselves, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop living this life of productivity and begin living a life of, of, I can't think of a word that rhymes with productivity, but there's probably a good one in there somewhere. <laughs> But to find a way to live a life like that, and it's it's difficult and it's challenging, but it's also very rewarding. And I, I think if we want our kids to live this life we're talking of, then we have to have the courage to do it. Because you can say to your kids, listen, you got to fight for what you believe in. Now I'm going to get up and go do this job I hate. Like they're not going to do it. You know, you, you have to do it. But it, it's hard because you you may have to give up everything that you currently have. Like that's a real possibility. You know, it's funny that uh, when I think the best thing that boomers and Xers can do for their kids <laughs> is, you know, kids are funny. I've I've got two boys, and they're uh, congratulations. You know, thank you. They're they're out of the house now. They're uh, you know they're young men of their own, and you know I think the biggest gift you can ever give your kids is an example. You know, makes you want to cry. Yes. Yeah. That, okay, you, you started your own business or you live the life on your terms or you know what? You're not going to do that anymore uh, because what they see is, okay, you did that and you're okay. You made it through it. It was hard, but you made it through it or you had, you kind of took control of your life and you did that. You know, I think boomers and Xers have a responsibility. There's always that kind of what, you know, that role in society of people, we talked about that earlier, you know, what is the role in society of the young people versus the middle-aged people versus the, you know, yeah. your elders. And your elders, the responsibility was always kind of a wisdom work. You know, your your job was to provide wisdom and guidance for the leaders who are the middle-aged people and to provide that kind of example to children and to younger people. I think the best thing that boomers and Xers can do is set that example and show kids, you know what, yeah. we can, that's what wisdom really is, is being able to, you know, kind of have the courage to do that. And if we do it, uh, people think, ah, you know, Gen Z, you know, they're, you know, younger people, they're not listening to you. Uh, no, they're not listening to you. They are absolutely not listening to you. You know what they're doing? They're watching. Yeah. They're observing. They will, they are, they do not care about what you say. They care about what you do. And I feel like if more of us can show, you know what? You can work independently. That'll work. Yep. You can make this thing work. Yeah, it's yep. hard, uh, but you can do it. You can decide what you want to do. You're not going to work 50 hours a week. You know what? You might only work 10 hours a week and you're going to have these art projects and you're going to have this of charitable stuff you're going to contribute to your community uh you're going to kind of have this you know kind of environmental kind of this nature thing you're working on like that's you know you get to decide design that life younger people will watch that and say yeah i bet i can do that i could do something like that there's a path i can follow like we need to kind of clear a path for that. Otherwise, it should come as no surprise that younger people like us will follow in the same footsteps. And yeah. it's pretty clear right now they don't want to. Uh, I think we have a responsibility 
to get out there and act like it, you yeah. know, uh, act like we can, there, there is something different. If we just go and retire from the same corporate grind, why would we expect our kids to do any different? It's yeah. the only thing they know. Uh, that's, that's sad. That part is sad. Uh, if people want to go and they say, I want to work for company X until I retire and I want to do that and they're happy doing that, more power to you. But they got to see a different path. Uh, so, you know, if there's anything that uh, we can encourage our, you know, listeners yeah. on this is, you know what? There are people who are doing this. You can too. Yeah. You know, you make it work. Uh, it is... It's not so bad. You learn that you can live with less and that those things that were kind of, you know, you know, the, those things that you had, you didn't really need. Uh, I had a, a mentor of mine, someone, a, a close friend said that really success is, you know, success for a kind of a like productivity should not be defined by how much you do. True productivity is really defined by how little you can do to get the result. It's really about how little and how quickly you can get something done. Just a different way to look at it. So thinking about how to do, not how to do more with less, how to do less with even less, you know, and really kind of boil it down. It's something we talk about in innovation all the time. People think that innovation is about adding new things to things until it becomes kind of bigger and bigger and better and better and better. What people don't understand is that most true innovation is cutting away all of that stuff. It's more like a sculpture and less yeah. like a painting. You know, innovation is not kind of adding layers to the painting for something to appear. It's more about kind of removing extra stone from a sculpture. And you discover it when you're there and you know when you get to the point. What did Michelangelo say? You know, you know, there's, a, you know, David is in there. I just <laughs> yeah. got to get rid of the stuff that's not David until I see it. Uh, I think it's just a different way to think about it. Like, I, I wish that people, young people would ask, so like, well, how many more ex extracurriculars could I take in high school or college? I wish they'd say, how much less could I do? that would be more meaningful, you know, you know, wouldn't that be a different question rather than trying to just add more things on? Cause that's that cult of productivity, right? That yeah. cult of more where, you know, what is the thing I'm really kind of passionate about and how do I, how about I just do that thing and kind of let all the other stuff go? You know, that would be, if artificial intelligence could take care of all the BS stuff and you could just focus on what things meant, that'd be a good use for it. You know, I, 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 I could do without uh, a lot of the tasks that need to get done uh, in an average day. Uh, and if I could just focus on being bored <laughs> and walking around and kind of letting my mind go, that would be, I would appreciate that. Yeah, having the freedom to think about what's important in your life and how to live a better life. I love the idea of the sculpture versus the painting, taking things away. It's interesting. In my house, we have a new theme, and it's called Letting Go. We're, we're, I have this giant library, and I'm looking at these books, and I'm like, why? Why do I have this book? 
I've read this book. What am I, why do I hold on to this? And there's something beautiful about the art of letting go. By, by taking that book and putting it in the pile to, to go away, I get to reflect on why I'm holding it. Do I love this character story? I did. I like the writing in there. What did I like about the writing? But by letting it go, I get to hold it dear one more time and understand and then make it mine in a way. And it's like, right. I was holding on to this thing, but now why don't I just take it? Why don't I just keep it inside and then give it to someone else to, to hold? It's getting kind of heavy. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. I think the, I love the, uh, you know, I've been going through that. I'm kind of in the middle of a move here. And <laughs> me too, man. All of and, us in some way. <laughs> uh, all of us in some way, but me very, you know, my wife and I very physically and, and soon, and we've had to have those decisions on, yeah. okay, instead of just putting things in a box, you know, we set a rule that like, hey, everything need to, needs to fit in this area and kind of the hatchback of the car uh, in order to move. And I thought, all right, well, do you really, you know, books are a great example, but even clothes you might yeah. have or things you may have around you. And you think, okay, that had a place and a time and the act of giving it away, I love how you put that, where the act of letting it go forces you to reflect on it right. in a way that you wouldn't have otherwise. If you just keep it and it's on a shelf, it's almost like you never have to do that. And I, I meet a lot of people who are, you know, moving into assisted living or they're moving into memory care or some such thing. And they have to let all of that stuff go in a hurry and think about mm. how hard that is for people uh, yeah. where it's almost overwhelming that it's better to give yourself a habit of letting things go routinely Yeah. that, Hey, is this still something that, you know, that's kind of not like bringing you joy, but does it, does it kind of serve a purpose right now? And I love the idea of, and I hadn't thought about it quite that way, that it makes you experience it again, <laughs> reflect on why you yeah. wanted it and say, Oh, you know, that was really important to me at that time. It is not important to me at this time. So I'm going to give it to someone else <laughs> that maybe it could be important for them at their time. You know, that your life is temporal, right? That, uh, you know, things are right at the right times. And to keep something longer than its time is, I don't want to say selfish. I think that's too harsh of a word. But... That's how I want to think about productivity, you know, yeah. the like that I'm using the things in my life that are absolutely essential right now. And I've let the other things go because, you know, I, you know, it, it, from a creative person's perspective, people think, oh, you just kind of want more and more and more. And really the opposite is true there too. It's you need to kind of clear away things. Otherwise your mind can't fit new things in. You know, you're, yes, yes. You know, you know, at least that's true for me that uh, if my mind is cluttered with too many things, I don't have room, you know, like during this move, it's there have been so many things going on that I haven't been able to pick up a new book in maybe six months. You know, I've been kind of rereading some things I enjoy reading or I'll read things for research, you know, but that's more, you know, that that's different. That's not kind of reading for pleasure, you know. I've just haven't been able to really pick one up and I feel a loss with that. And it, the reason is I just don't have mental space for it right now. And I'm looking forward to kind of putting that behind me 
and being able to say, okay, well, I've got some space now. I'd love to pick up a few new novels and new things I just haven't had time for, haven't, not the time, time is, everyone has the same 24 hours, but the mental time, which is a different thing, kind of the emotional time for it. And I'm interested in that. Uh, I'm interested in reading something that has no other purpose. That's where all the good ideas come from. <laughs> you know, when you're not looking for something is when the best ideas come. I love it. It's it's mesmerizing to think of. And I do. I, I, I've been giving away a lot of books lately. And I look at someone like, this is a first edition. I'm like, who cares? <laughs> what is you know? And, and here's the cool thing about books that you can do as I'm giving them away. And I like the idea of, 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 you know, holding something past its prime. It seems to me like holding a wonderful fruit that doesn't go, that goes bad. You know, yeah. like what this fruit is right. Give it to your neighbor, man. Yeah. They'll probably love it. So I'm like, this is the first edition. You know, who would love this book is this guy that I does met. I bet you yeah. what a wonderful gift. And I'll give it to him for Christmas. Hey, this other book, my cousin's going through this thing. Maybe they would love that book. Now I get to take this thing, reflect on it, get to hear the story again, tell it, and then give that story to someone else. And so yeah. it's like, wow. It's it, it, and, and on top of that, when you're clearing stuff out of your environment, you are, you're creating space so that you can grow again. Getting rid of the stuff in your environment, getting rid of the stuff in here, these old ideas that no longer serve you, while difficult because you must process them and understand why they no longer serve you. But once you figure that out, you can't let them go. Like hold them. I love you. And then be on your way. Now you have room to grow. And if you think about that on a grand scale, it's beautiful because when you look at it, you go, holy cow, I'm growing right here. Holy cow. I'm creating this whole new space. Holy cow. What does that mean? I'm a whole new person. What does that mean? I can help other people. I can I can help myself. I can help my family. I understand relationships different. Like it all comes together, this letting go, you know? <laughs> I think we see that, you know, to bring it full circle, we see that at the societal level. We saw it in the 1920s. We're seeing it again here where people were letting go of, in the 1920s, people were letting go of the pre, kind of the pre-World War I world. And there were a lot of things about it. And people were kind of figuring out what a new world sort of looked like. And they were letting go of a lot of things. And no one knew exactly what was coming in. But there was a lot of <laughs> rapid growth and change. And it was scary. And it was chaotic. But people had to let it go. Uh, otherwise, it was very difficult to let anything new in. So... I think at the micro level, a lot of us are letting a lot of things go, letting a lot of those assumptions go, doing different things. And that's happening at a societal level as well. You know, so when you think about, you know, what can history tell you about that is, you know what, that that's necessary, that it can be a little scary, but that we'll get through it and that we'll be better in some ways and worse in some other ways on the other side of it. But it's okay if some bad things are in. You know what? We'll have to clean those up. Uh, and that if good things are in, we're going to have to recognize them so that we don't mess them up. Uh, but it's okay. You know, that's that kind of shaking things up a little bit is a natural process that happens cyclically. Uh, it happens after major events uh, that we've lived through. It's okay. And it's okay not to know. 
exactly what's coming and to kind of let it let some of it happen and try some things out and be okay if like hey this this thing that we were kind of experimenting with and kind of thinking about well that didn't work so well you know that that uh, you know that wasn't great let's not do that again there are a lot of things in the 1920s that people let go and didn't do again uh and we're seeing this some of those same things here i think people get so wrapped up that if they see something happen on you know, TikTok, or they see something happen in their professional life, that it's going to be that way forever. Right. We're in a period of really rapid change. Things will come and go. Just, you know, it, it, we got a, uh, that uh, saying about weather in Minnesota, and lots of places have this. You know, if you're, if you're uncomfortable with the weather in Minnesota, just wait. You know, wait a day. <laughs> It'll be different tomorrow. Uh, it's okay. We'll be fine. We'll, we'll be fine. Yeah, it's it's a if you stop and smell the roses for a minute, we live in truly transformative times, and with with chaos comes opportunity. Wasn't was there a an incredible amount of opportunity in the twenties as well? Oh yeah, I mean, if you think about just the amount of you know new products, new services, mm. kind of growth happening, that, that immigration, new things kind of happening, this kind of cauldron of new things happening uh at that time i think like the number of new products that got invented during that time and new things and new places to go and new entertainment you know all of those things were so exciting during that time it was always overwhelming for people it was really scary for people who were born in 1870 wow. or 1860 you're born at the tail end of the civil war to experience something like the 1920s was so jarring uh, to them because their life hadn't really changed that much until, wow, I could go to the first supermarket. You know, I could, I'd have the first radio. I mean, just think about how crazy the radio <laughs> was that you could hear a baseball game as it was being played across the country and you didn't have to be there. I mean, crazy stuff that, it, that you know, there are a lot of times that like kind of rich, privileged people have always had kind of more advantages than other people have had throughout history. That's been true. But during the 1920s, what was really crazy is the average person had access to a lot of that. Lots, not everybody, not everybody. People get you on that, that like, well, you know, there were this group. Of, I, I know they're always that. <laughs> But most people, really most like low-income people, you know, traditionally disadvantaged people, women, like groups of people that never had that kind of freedom and a freedom of choice before finally had it. That was scary at a cultural level, especially for the people in power who said, wow, there are a lot of people I'm not used to being around here exercising this kind of power. You know, voting with their wallets, that was a crazy time, uh, you know, where people had those kind of consumer choices. Uh, and we're seeing that again, that people could choose to work the way they want to work. They could choose to have the identity they want to have. That's really scary to a lot of people. Really scary. And you get a lot of grinding and gnashing of teeth. I can tell you that all of the same things. I had this fun experiment once where I took 
a kind of cultural critique from the 1920s. And I just changed a few of the names, you know, changed some of the references. And people thought, oh, is that MSNBC? Is that, you know, is that Stephen Colbert? And then I had another one and people said, oh, is that Sean Hannity? You know, is that like, nope, these are all people from the 1920s. And I didn't even change their words. Wow. It's the same stuff. That same kind of like the world is ending because people have freedom now to, you know, to make choices that I would prefer they not make. Uh, <laughs> you know what? That's okay. I love it. I love it. Jason, this is an amazing conversation, my friend. I uh, I feel like it's flown by too fast and I feel like we could probably talk for another hour if I didn't have another podcast coming up here. So I'm going to have, if it's okay, I would love to have you come back and, and we could begin to solve some more of the world's problems. I think it'd be a lot of fun. Uh, uh, next time we will be in similar climatic zones. I'll be in uh, uh, South Florida where I've got, uh, got nice. some family. That's where we're moving. Uh, half my family's Cuban. So uh, I, I will argue that uh, although there are a lot of great things about Minneapolis, Good Cuban food is not one of them. Uh, and I am looking forward to a little bit of uh, food that better meets my heritage. And uh, I, I, I cannot wait. There is, uh, uh, there is some lechon asado uh, ready for me down there as soon as I get there. Not to mention the warm embrace of a family that you've probably been away from for far too long up in the cool weather up there. So I'm, I'm excited for you. I can't wait right. to, to speak again. But before I even let you go, Maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, where people can find you, some of the books coming out, and what you got coming up. Yeah, uh, people can find me best on uh, jasontvoyovich.com. Just put the T in the middle. Uh, I'm pretty easy to find on uh, on Google if you search for Voyovich. Uh, you know, you know, I, it's the kind of the benefit and the drawback of having a really unique name. <laughs> I'm very easy to find. If I do anything bad, I'm also very easy to find. Uh, LinkedIn is an easy place to find me too, or Amazon for the books. Uh, uh, Marketer in Chief was my first book. The second one is Booze, Babe, and the Little Black Dress. That's about the 1920s. My current project is working on the follow-up to that, which is consumer culture in the 1930s during the Great Depression. Uh, so learning a ton of really cool stuff. Uh, uh, I think it's going to be a great follow-up. I think it'll be just as exciting and over the top as into the 1920s era people think that the 1930s was the great depression it was just depressing uh, but <laughs> it was so crazy so fun so innovative so interesting that i think people really be surprised by that uh, uh check it out join my mailing list you'll get kind of a heads up on when that's coming but uh probably uh later next year at the earliest uh but there's plenty to read there in the meantime so uh, I really appreciate the opportunity just to chat with you. It's been a lot of fun and just uh, uh, to kind of uh, meet some new people in the interwebs and all of that. And I think your cat who was kind of walking around in the back there, I think I also saw your cat. I got to meet the cat. That was that was also good. You got a newsletter too, don't you? I do. It's uh, published. Uh, I, I wish it were published regularly. Kind of do as I say, not as I do when it comes <laughs> to things like that. But it is published when I think I have something to say that's interesting, which is sometimes really often, and then sometimes 
you need to wait a little while. So it, I will never send anything that I don't think is interesting. That's my promise. So if it's like, boy, it was supposed to be Monday and I don't have anything interesting to say on Monday, I will not send you anything. On Monday. <laughs> I love uh, it. Because if I'm bored, I think so will you. Yeah, that's really well said. Ladies and gentlemen, I cannot recommend enough. You saw what happened here today. You got to listen to the hopefully amazing, incredible, and, and wonderful, as, as I thought, conversation. And I look forward to hang on briefly afterwards, Jason. I'll speak to you briefly. But to the ladies and gentlemen out there, I hope you have a wonderful day. I hope you know that change is something that's necessary. And if you have the courage to do it, the life will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. And if you're an Xer or a boomer, you have a responsibility to do it. Let's make the next generation better. That's all we got for today, ladies and gentlemen. Aloha. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.